The sun has set, and the night sky is awake with stars. It's time for Stellar Stories, a podcast about the constellations of the nighttime sky. Welcome, and thanks for giving this podcast a shot. I'm your host, Jack Baston. Stories about the stars have got to be the oldest stories of all time. These stories about the stars were first told by our ancestors thousands of years ago, and they remain a part of our culture today. Mythologists, many of them, believe that by studying ancient myths, we can study the development of thought itself. We can study how we, as humans, developed critical thinking skills, and how we did so to try to answer the questions which were most important to us. If we want, we can even try to see when and where a question or an idea first came into existence. Like how our technology and sciences stand upon the shoulders of our predecessors, so too does our philosophy, our opinions, and our ideas about the world around us. You know, when an idea enters a culture, often it'll stay. For good or for bad, if it's based in fiction or in fact, an idea will persist in some form or another. With regard to stories about the sky, it makes sense why these stories would stay with us. No matter how much our lives or our surroundings changed over the course of the past thousands of years, the sun, the stars, and the patterns of the sky remained relative constants. And so, our stories about them remained relatively constant as well. Granted, over that much time, these stories did change, as to technically did the starscape of the night sky. Both, however, changed slowly. All of this fascinates me. Which, I guess, is why I am making this podcast. I enjoy glimpses of history's big picture. I love learning how, over time, a language or an idea or a story changes and develops. I'm fascinated with all this, and I hope that you are too. In each episode of this podcast, I'm going to focus on a constellation. I'll tell the story associated with that constellation, and I'll also rope in some history or philosophy related to the constellation. For this episode, I'm going to focus on the constellation Ursa Major. Ursa Major is Latin for bigger bear. Here, the comparison of the bear being bigger is made with another constellation, Ursa Minor. Ursa Minor is Latin for smaller bear. Most people are probably familiar with Ursa Major. After all, it's the constellation which contains the Big Dipper. The Big Dipper is those seven stars, four of which form a quadrangle, while the other three form a handle or tail. The Big Dipper is not the whole Ursa Major constellation. Officially, the Big Dipper is just classified as an asterism. Now, this is a very unimportant distinction. The trivial difference between an asterism and a constellation is that a constellation is an officially recognized pattern of stars, while an asterism is not officially recognized as a pattern of stars. So, the full constellation is Ursa Major, and the myth associated with this pattern of stars is really quite old. The myth predates our written record of some of our oldest texts. We know this because Ursa Major appears within those texts. It's in the Iliad of Homer, and it's believed to be referenced in the Old Testament's Book of Job. In the Iliad, Hephaestus, god of the forge, works the bear constellation into the ornamentation of the great shield of Achilles. In the Book of Job, the constellation is obliquely included in an itemization of the heavens for which God is creator. 
Yet, besides this written evidence, there is non-written evidence, which points at a still older origin for the Ursa Major myth. Across the Northern Hemisphere, people spanning Europe, Asia, Africa, and America all associate these Ursa Major stars, or nearby stars, with the story of a hunt. The stories across the cultures do have major differences, but groups as separate as Native Americans and Europeans both will point up at the Big Dipper and tell the story of a bear hunt. This isn't a unique phenomenon. Diverse cultures share all kinds of similar myths, and there are various theories why. Some mythologists believe we have common myths because we all, as human beings, perceive the world in the same common way. Notably, Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, was one who purported this idea. Carl Jung was all like, yo, the human mind inherits patterns called archetypes, and when we perceive the outside world, we do so by matching the exterior world onto these patterns. If this is the case, various people share similar myths because all human minds share limited ways of interpreting the world. Other mythologists believe that the shared myths come from the same original source. In this one study, a study called A Cosmic Hunt in the Berber Sky, a philologist named Julian de Huy traces a myth's history using the same tools that biologists use to trace a species' evolutionary history. Now, a species' evolutionary history can be traced back through time and place by plotting what a creature was like when and where. Doing so creates a tree diagram, and the tree diagram then reveals how species across the Earth are connected, what their progenitors were like, and also where species diverged or originated. So the author of the study applied this method to myths. He plotted where and when different versions of a given myth existed, and what elements of the myth each version contained. By doing this, he generated the evolutionary tree of that myth. In the study, the myth's evolutionary tree is shown to parallel the migrations of our ancestors. That is to say, that this study shows that many myths share a common origin in Africa, from where the myths dispersed some 50,000 or more or less years ago. The Ursa Major myth is one such myth. It exists as a variation within a family of myths, which the study traces back to a common origin in Africa. Now, before we talk more about the Ursa Major origin myth, or any of that original myth's other descendants, let's head outside and get some perspective on the night sky stars. I mean, you don't have to go outside if you're otherwise engaged, but I had been thinking this podcast might be something fun to listen to while out beneath the stars. This podcast could be like those on-location audio tours for tourist sites, but the location you have to get to is just the Northern Hemisphere. So, once you're there, to find Ursa Major, look to the north. This constellation is a quintessential part of the northern sky. Actually, the word Arctic, like an Arctic Ocean, comes from the Greek word for bear, Arctos, which is the Greek name of the Ursa Major constellation. The north is considered where the bears are, both Ursa Major and Ursa Minor and polar bears. The Antarctic south is the opposite of the Arctic the ante of the Arctic, and where the bears are not. Or, maybe, where the anti-bears are. Maybe. Looking to the north, there is a method you can use to collectively locate the North Star and the Big Dipper. The Big Dipper, 
also known as the plow, is a quadrangle of four stars, with three stars coming off what is referred to as the upper left-hand corner of the quadrangle. So, opposite the left, on the right, if you extend the Big Dipper's right side, it should form an almost straight line with the North Star. The North Star is also named Polaris, the Pole Star. Polaris hangs out directly above the North Pole, so each night, as the Earth spins, the stars of the night sky appear to rotate around Polaris. The direction Earth's pole faces does rotate, so currently we're all pointed at Polaris, but our pole's direction rotates one degree every 72 years. Due to that rotation, a millennium ago, Polaris did not inhabit as convenient a location in our sky. It does now, though, and navigation has never been easier. Both the Pole Star and the Big Dipper are bright, so if you spot a quadrangle with three bright stars coming off of it, and you can make a straight line with the right side of the quadrangle to a nearby, fairly bright star, then you have located Polaris, and by extension, the Big Dipper. Again, the Big Dipper is just a small part of the Ursa Major constellation. When looking at the whole of the Ursa Major constellation, that whole picture looks like one big crayon with a tail and legs. The crayon outline of the bear's body and head is made up of two quadrangles and a triangle. The first quadrangle is the Big Dipper quadrangle. Then, a second quadrangle of about equal size extends off the right of that. That's the body. The head extends off the right of that in a triangular shape. That completes the big crayon part. The Big Dipper's handle is Ursa Major's tail, and Ursa Major's legs extend down from both the left side of the body and the right side of the second quadrangle of the body. They extend about what would be quadruple the height of the Big Dipper quadrangle. Then, partway down, the back legs split becoming two separate lines, with each of the two back legs and the single front leg ending in little two-star feet. If you cannot see the whole bear, maybe because many of the stars aren't that bright, or because you've seen what real bears look like and this constellation with its long tail and legs looks nothing like a bear, then just pretend. Spoilers, it isn't a real bear. Seeing shapes in the sky is just your brain's hyperactive desire to categorize anything unfamiliar into a category of familiar images. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention a life hack, though the hack is hardly relevant in the modern age of cell phones and their clocks. Nonetheless, life hack, as it takes about 4 minutes shy of 24 hours for all the stars to rotate around Polaris, that line, drawn from the right-hand side of the Big Dipper to Polaris, can be used as a giant makeshift hour hand of a 24-hour clock. Thus, if you're out and your cell phone battery dies, take note of the position of the Big Dipper, and you can track how agonizingly long it's been since you had access to Twitter. At that point, looking up at the night sky, you may not be connected to the most important thing in life, but you will be connected to one of the celestial myths which have persisted across millennia of human history. I referenced a study earlier, the one which traces the family tree of different versions of myths. In that study, the myth family which Ursa Major's myth is a part of is called the Cosmic Hunt Myth. Myths in this myth family all descend from the same original myth. The original myth, we know, 
tells the story of a mammal hunt, wherein the mammal somehow ends up in the sky. And that's about the story that we know about that original myth. We know much more about the descendants of that original myth. The study identified 47 descendants of that myth. 28 of those descendants are associated with the stars of the Big Dipper, while the other 19 variations of the cosmic hunt are associated with the constellations of Orion or the Pleiades. One of those versions associated with the Big Dipper comes from the North American tribe of the Mi'kmaq. In the Mi'kmaq version, the four stars of the Big Dipper's quadrangle represent a great bear, one which is being hunted by seven birds. Three of those birds form the Big Dipper's handle. Of those three stars, the star closest to the bear is Robin. The middle star is Chickadee, who carries along a cook pot, and the third star is Moosebird. The other four birds, Pigeon, Blue Jay, Barred Owl, and Small Saw Wet Owl, trail behind in the stars recognized as the Bootes constellation. Basically, all summer long, these seven birds circle the sky, chasing the bear, and they grow hungrier and hungrier, till, finally, in autumn, Robin realizes it's been carrying a bow the whole time, and Robin shoots the bear. In response to being shot, the bear dies pretty gruesomely. Its blood just gushing all over Robin, who, understandably, is disgusted to be covered in bear blood, and who flies over to a nearby maple tree. In an effort to clean all that blood off, Robin ends up turning every maple tree in North America red, and doesn't even manage to get the red stain out of its own breast feathers. Then, once Robin is cleaned up best Robin can, and all the other birds have washed their hands, they use Chickadee's large pot to cook the bear, and they feast, gorging themselves on bear meat. Though, they don't eat the bones of the bear, whose skeleton lies on its back all winter, and they don't eat the bear's white fat, which falls to the earth in the form of winter's white snow. When winter ends, and the spirit of the celestial bear has inhabited a new bear body, spring begins, and the bear leaves its den, once more to be pestered by hungry birds. Note that some of the details of that story were not present in the source material, but in keeping with the oral tradition of telling a myth, I embellished and omitted pieces of the story while maintaining the main myth plot points, or mythemes, as mythologists call them. Whenever we translate or modify the presentation of a myth, we of course misrepresent the cultural context the original story had, but modifications to a myth are what allow the myth to stay culturally relevant and to survive. Even when modified, a myth retains its identity. Myths have identities, just as cultures have identities. Those identities fluctuate over time, but generally are maintained. Often, we intuitively know the identity of a myth or a culture, but when we don't, we can approach the myth or the culture as a structuralist would, and we can define a plot structure for the identity. For the myth of the cosmic hunt and all its different variations, that myth's identity could be given the plot structure of 1. There is a hunt of some creature. 2. It is related to a constellation. 3. The creature exists within the sky at some point in the story. Any rendition which fits that outline could be considered a version of that myth. For the more specific Mediterranean version of the myth, from which Ursa Major gets its name, 
Even there, we commonly accept multiple versions, all as the same myth. We identify the versions penned by Ovid, Hesiod, and Pseudo-Apollodorus as the same myth. We do so because they all follow the same general narrative. That narrative concerns a nymph and the events in her life which led her to become a giant sky bear. The nymph is Callisto. Her name means fairest one, and that's supposedly all Greeks required to define her. Though, I found a website which didn't list its sources and which did say she also had a talent for knitting. So, Callisto is this hipster who knits all her own clothing. She's abandoned patriarchal society in the ways it's tried to define her, and she's gone off to live with her friends and God in the woods. Long ago, in the land of ancient Greece, there are a bunch of gods. The one Callisto has gone to live with is Artemis, goddess of the hunt who loves arrows. Artemis, who loves arrows, does so more than just in poetic epithet. She will love no man. Arrows are the only phallic objects for her. Furthermore, as Artemis is a god, and thereby the de facto leader of her clique, she makes everyone who hangs out with her also swear off guys. These women who do hang out with her live as in a magic paradise. They'll spend day and night outside, hunting beneath the sun and sleeping beneath the stars. For cleanliness, they bathe in nature's hot springs. And one day, Callisto, who has disrobed from all her hand-knit clothing, is taking advantage of one of these exclusive hot springs. She believes she's bathing alone, but at the touch of a hand upon her back, she turns to find herself pressed to the form of her goddess, Artemis, who loves arrows. The two totally make out. And I imagine the steam coming off the hot spring shrouds all the other mischief they might get up to. When the two finish having their good time, Callisto, much to her surprise, finds herself burdened with child. At this point, it's probably apparent I've neglected some aspects of the story. There are more characters in this myth than just Artemis or Callisto. Though I didn't mention this, because maybe it should be obvious, Life is not a magic paradise, no matter how much it may feel like one when you're out on a hunt with all your best friends. This unfortunate fact of life is especially true for all who live beneath the gaze of Zeus, the pervert god. Zeus, who rules upon Mount Olympus and who holds dominion over all the gods and goddesses, spends much of his time taking advantage of young women. Weeks earlier, Zeus's pervy gaze fell upon Callisto as she was out upon the hunt. Zeus was aware that he could not approach her outright, for he knows all and knows that the followers of Artemis had sworn off the touch of man. Thus, he devised a plan. Patiently, he waited for Callisto to be alone, and he waited for his own wife to be distracted. He waited and waited, till one day, Callisto was alone. His wife was distracted. Zeus disguised himself as Artemis and zipped to the hot spring. As with most gods of most major religions, Zeus's primary power seems to be ruining people's lives. But he has this fascinating secondary power, which he often employs as a precursor to the primary one, and that is that he is extremely potent. The potency seems to be this way of showing how much more masculine Zeus is than a mortal man. When he makes love, it doesn't matter what form he takes. He can be a swan, or he can be a woman, like in this case, or even just the form of water. 
he has a sort of Midas touch about these things. Anything he taps becomes pregnant. In the aftermath of Zeus's sexual deceit, Callisto's life falls apart. Her vow is broken, her body has felt the touch of a man, and though Zeus is at fault, clearly, Callisto fears her pregnancy will be discovered by Artemis, goddess of the hunt, who loves arrows and feels only meh on habeas corpus and the right to full due process of law. If Artemis were to discover Callisto and Zeus's indecency, Artemis would blame the victim, and then probably kill her. Therefore, when Callisto spies Artemis returning to the hot springs, she trembles and clutches herself. In fear, Callisto flees into the woods. But her trouble doesn't end there. Zeus, as I mentioned, is married. His wife is Hera, goddess of women. When Zeus returns that night, Hera smells the scent of two women on him, and concludes that her husband pretended to be his daughter Artemis in order to make love with his daughter's friend, Callisto. Smelling all this, Hera, who, like Artemis, is a god and also suffers from poor judgment, blames Callisto for her serially unfaithful husband's most recent transgression. Hera descends into the woods, and she hunts for Callisto, calling out, Nymph, how dare you become pregnant? How dare your belly wax and grow round like the glowing moon, glowing like a beacon pregnantly pointing out my Zeus's shame? Hera's hunt for Callisto progresses, and Callisto's belly does indeed grow. However, the moment before Hera can expose his lover, Zeus, intervenes. Like the Pokemon Teddy Ursa hitting level 30, Callisto suddenly evolves into a massive bear. Hera, unaware of this transformation, continues to close in on her prey, calling out, Hussy, your uterus expands, and soon shall you moan in the pains of birth, but I shall give you something else to moan about when I get my hands on you, in revenge for dallying with my husband? Hera's month-long monologue ends in a question as she spots her husband. Cool as can be, just posted up in the middle of the woods, blocking the sight of a large she-bear. What dalliance are you talking about, my love? Zeus asks. The only ones here are me and this bear, and I would never make love with a bear. Zeus lies. Husband, you have gotten away with it this time, but I shall expose and punish your extramarital affairs someday. Ha ha ha, and we'll still have an unhappy marriage. Zeus responds, and together the two leave the woods and Callisto behind. Somehow, Callisto gives birth to a wriggling baby human boy, whom her father raises. Then, fifteen years pass. Callisto accustoms herself to the taste of honey as she continues being a bear. Her son, Arcus, fifteen and eager to prove himself a man full grown, comes upon his mother in the woods, and with spear in hand, he prepares to strike her down. Local sources were just reporting that a bear was spotted trespassing on holy ground. So, the locals issued a reward for the arrest of that bear, and Arcus, bounty hunter, set out to claim that bear's head and the accompanying bounty. Here are the pair posed. Mother Bear Callisto rears up towering over Arcus, who stands unknowingly about to slay his mother. When, Olympian Zeus, who had spent the past 15 years ruining numerous people's lives, 
spots this opportunity to gain back some goodwill. Quick as a bolt of lightning from his own deadly quiver, Zeus flies to the scene. In bullet time, he grabs both mother and son, pauses the boy in mid-strike, and swift does he fling the pair of them into the sky. Thump! There the pair land, safe from death in the eternal heavens. Callisto is Ursa Major, and her son is Ursa Minor. They say that Hera, she who was suspicious of that bear she spotted in the woods, made sure that Callisto and her son would never be given rest. For that reason, the constellations Ursa Major and Ursa Minor never dip below the horizon, and must tirelessly circle round the heavens, depending upon your latitude. Myths survive because they make a culturally relevant statement. And so, by analyzing a myth, we can learn about a culture. Mythology is often such an exercise in literary analysis. When we read the Ursa Major myth, we read themes. We read themes about Greek societal roles, about the arbitrary nature of life or the universe or the gods, and we read about change. Now, you may have noticed that we're nearing the end of the episode, and we've gotten to the point where I get to make some tidy, unifying conclusion. Here is that conclusion. People, societies, cultures, all are subject to change. One day a person can be a person, the next they're a bear, or pregnant, or both. As something changes though, it maintains an identity. In the Ursa Major myth, Callisto transforms into a bear, but we have no qualms about identifying the bear as Callisto, and neither did our ancestors. The Ursa Major myth hasn't always been told in the same way though some form of its identity has existed for maybe the past 50,000 years. Since that time, we've changed much, yet we've maintained our myths. We've maintained a fascination for the stars, and we've maintained an identity. This has been an episode of Stellar Stories. If you would like, you cannot find me on Twitter, because I don't have a Twitter. But I'll try to come up with some way for you to give me some feedback by next episode. You can tell your friends or random strangers about this episode if you did like it, and I will greatly appreciate that. I like doing this, though it took a fair amount of time and capital. Still, this was good. Let's do it again sometime.